Sixty. We're actually going to dig into a topic that is quite controversial depending on where you find yourself on the denomination spectrum and that is the topic of speaking in tongues um, but the way we're going to approach this is slightly different um, in a way that you can actually understand um, in a historical context um, the question would be what was the purpose and the function of speaking in tongues in the New Testament Obviously, there are a lot of preconceptions with this um, doctrine and understanding from various different people and churches and denominations. And we hope to get to the bottom of that in this episode. I'm not quite sure how many episodes we needed to, to cover it all, but we certainly take a, a good step at this point just to get the ball rolling. Um, the main two understandings of this um, this gift or sign um, has two words um, in Greek that you can approach it with. There is uh, the standpoint of glossolalia and there's also that of xenolalia. Glossolalia um, is essentially uh, two Greek words stuck together um, so you have glossa meaning the little tongue and lalia um, to speak this is also known as aesthetical utterances um, and um, is widely known or widely practiced I should say in Pentecostal slash uh, charismatic slash hyper charismatic churches um, you might see in other um, denominations as well in varying ways, shapes and sizes, but um, generally it follows the same premise. Um, the xenolalia, which um, is a different standpoint, is that it is, um, well, xenolalia in the Greek means to be speaking languages unknown to the speaker who um, who speaks it um, I would say from the from say probably from the onset that my position is uh, the latter um, as we go through scripture um, it seems to be the most consistent theme um, but we'll bounce between the two and I'll put my argument towards it obviously some people might consider this um, even though a whole lot of effort has been put in that, you know, it's still not true or, you know, it's blaspheming the Holy Spirit and the fact that we've been talking about it, but um, obviously it's not blasting anyone. Uh, it's just trying to get to the bottom of what actually happened within scripture as all of this unfolded. Um, what we'll do is we'll walk through some of the general arguments that people do have on the glossolalia side and we'll um, put it towards scripture and we'll see um, obviously where we can learn or whether there um, are errors in the position or, or whether there was actually some um, solidified facts that um, another position to to stand its ground and um, I guess the first argument is that uh, speaking in tongues is the initial evidence of being baptized with the Spirit. Um, there are two references mainly that someone would go to and that would be Acts 2 and Mark 16 verse 9 to 20. Uh, if I were exegetically following through this, um, 
well, essentially I'd explain why this might be problematic to hold this claim. Because um, when reading Acts 2, um, the argument does seem valid, especially when you consider that there are other instances um, of the same um, gift sign or process happening in other geolocations and people groups. But if we pull back, there are a few hermeneutical points to make when interpreting and applying um, the book of Acts of Scripture. Um, this is, by nature, the genre of the book of Acts is a, and it's a historical narrative. Um, this is evident from the style of writing um, in comparison to, say, 1 Corinthians. So with this in mind, like other books of its nature, um, it is more descriptive than prescriptive. Um, obviously this, when, if you are interpreting scripture in a way to try and build a doctrine on something that is um, historical, um, it can bring um, a lot of uh, error in the sense that um, the scripture might not actually be leading towards the truth you're pulling out. They call the eyes of Jesus. So you're reading into the text something that isn't actually there. Um, but also when it comes to narratives, just like if you were to read like a, a fictional or non-fiction, um, narrative is not normative. So um, just because it happened for somebody in scripture to say like, I don't know, someone gets translated from one place to another, you can't then base that as a foundation to say, because this happened for this one person, it can also happen for me and for everybody else. Um, but we'll continue on in um, in this sense. Um, to say that, you know, let's give them some grace. Let's say that if um, this argument that, you know, speaking in terms of evidence of being filled with the Spirit, um, there are a few points that are overlooked and I didn't realize this until it was mentioned to me um, especially with, with regards to the Apostles um, in John 20 verse 22 um, it stated that Jesus gives the Holy Spirit to the disciples this is prior to the day of Pentecost um, and it's also fulfilling scriptures that are laid out in the Old Testament um, specifically um, Ezekiel 36 where you see um, the decree that God makes then work through Jesus' ministry especially with his disciples um, but um, the con yeah, the context behind it is that um, in Ezekiel anyway um, is that because God's name is being purveined um, by the Jews who are dispersed he makes a decree uh, for the sake of his name he will clean um, clean, the clean the Jews give them a new heart of flesh and put his spirit within them to cause them to walk in his statutes and obey his law um, that's a very beautiful scripture that you can look into because you do see how if you read it in its fullness that um, especially around what happens on the day of Pentecost, how this really does come to fruition. Um, but that aside, um, you, um, you can definitely see that the apostles definitely have the Holy Spirit, obviously because it's backed up in scripture, but um, also in the, the way that they're discussing things um, in the book of Acts, um, specifically say that one and two, uh, where they're discussing scripture with um, an enlightenment um, there's something that you would have to take into consideration is that um, the Torah and Tanakh weren't readily available um, in this time period they were all held within the uh, the temple so they didn't have personal copies of these things like we do with, with, with the Bible um, it was all held in one place and it usually was the temple of that time so it it's great to consider that when um, Peter's discussing certain scriptures from the Old Testament, 
that um, they are prophecies essentially laid out that would probably be obscured had you not had the Holy Spirit at all. Um, and yeah, more interestingly, um, it empowered Peter to to share the gospel message. I don't think he would have been able to to share that on his own, especially with the understanding that we have of the, the Holy Spirit in terms of like one of the um, the traits of the Holy Spirit is that he convicts people of sin, most definitely, um, and that obviously comes with two drawbacks: either someone comes to repentance, or um, they go down the line of persecution. It's certainly evident in the scripture that um, there seems to be a correlation between being boldened to be able to preach this simple but very controversial or dangerous message but with regards to uh, the salvific nature of um, this indication it for me is quite clear in scripture that Jesus's focus is intrinsic in the sense that it's fruits or specifically spiritual fruits that um, indicates that someone has come to Christ, like their life has been completely changed. Like you see how, um, uh, not only in the Old Testament with the decrees and um, how God works out grace with those in the Old Testament, but you also see in set out Paul's letters in the way that he uses apologetics to try and break down what is actually going on in the life of a believer that there is a regeneration aspect that um, we have a tendency to overlook um, that also bears fruit so like Jesus mentions that you know um, paraphrasing like you cannot bear these fruit apart from me if you abide in the vine um, the in conclusion is that you're going to bear fruit um, but that's a different um, topic that I would get to in the future um, but then obviously the signs um, that it's highlighting with regards to speaking in tongues in the book of Acts is just that it's a sign that's pointing towards something um, this I will not mention just now because a lot of the other arguments um, will hopefully allow the momentum to roll into that but it's something I just want you to keep in mind um, and also I've mentioned the the ending of Mark, um, I don't know whether a lot of you are aware, but there is, if you do have a study Bible to be fair, um, it might come up with um, a note as you come towards the end of uh, the end of the book of Mark that says that um, this portion of scripture between 9 and 20, uh, yeah, was not found in the earliest manuscripts and there's also discussion that it might have been added by a particular scholar um, at a certain point in Christian history um, that obviously allows us to approach this portion of scripture um, with not skepticism but with caution um, obviously it says you know Jesus mentions that um, all uh, essentially like those who come to him will speak in languages they'll pick up serpents they'll do xyz drink poison and all that um those who argue that this is a salvific thing um would turn around and say yeah look it says here that i will speak in tongues but then they would probably not always but probably ignore the other things that are lined up that supposedly jesus had said um if this portion of scripture were to be like inspired um, and part of the canon um, you would probably not just want to take one part you'd want to take the whole thing but um, it is quite easy to suggest that even if if this is part of scripture that is actually pointing towards um, someone who has seen these things and it is um, highly probable that it is Paul that um, quite well fits that criteria when you look through the New Testament of all the things that happened to him um, 
but ultimately you obviously you'd want to take this with caution you wouldn't want to you know start handling snakes and drinking poison to prove that you are um you are a child of god because essentially that's what being um baptized with the holy spirit is it's like you it's the transitional period between you being um an unregenerated sinner to being born again um there is far more substance to, to obviously it the the works that you do is a result of salvation but it's not the cause of it if that makes sense like it's yeah the the, the true things that you would see it would be the like we mentioned earlier the fruits uh the changing personality the loss of desire with sin the desire to to please god more walking in um that road of sanctification and all those little elements um obviously we, we take for granted because it's or for some people it's it doesn't seem like enough there has to be like this massive spiritual experience or manifestation to prove that you have um received the holy spirit and um it essentially pushes people into have and have not categories because um if you were to step back metaphorically in christian history um this wasn't really a focus 150 years plus uh prior to the um the pentecostal movement coming to coming to being and if it was a case where this was an indication that you know everyone was filled with the holy spirit understanding the salvific weight of what having the Holy Spirit in your life actually means, especially for um, walking into eternity, that there is a lot of people going right back to as early as um, the first century who didn't exhibit this gift or sign or manifestation. So if they haven't got the Holy Spirit then and they hadn't manifested it at all, um, We have a self-fulfilling problem like this is even though this is a non-essential it's been made um an issue because it's been attached to an essential part of um salvation so it does need talking through in that sense it's not just a oh you know i don't like this or it's not happened to me it's if it was a case of okay we believe this um it's not critical to salvation then it's fine to some degree um, we can work with that but because it's been attached to something that essentially affects us all we do have a problem because uh, essentially we're saying that people are destined to hell because um, now that you know this this small pocket of Christians have now said that the rest of Christian history now has scepticism into it because they haven't um, exhibited this sign that was not a focus at all before the, the movement so um yeah um to understand how you know the holy spirit does play in the in the life of a believer in terms of like the security sort of sides um you can look into a first corinth or oh, second corinthians sorry um 1 verse 22 in Ephesians 1 verse 13 to 14 where it talks about the inheritance and the guarantee um, for the day of redemption um, so yeah that kind of lays that bit out That's obvious, and obviously there is a, uh, a counter argument that obviously there's a distinction between indwelling and the being filled with the Holy Spirit which is completely valid totally agree with that um, we should all desire to be filled with the Holy Spirit um, it's not an experience though it's a lifestyle as we forsake our own sin in a, um, for allowing ourselves to be um, readily available and under the influence of the Holy Spirit and in doing so we become more like Christ as you know begins to prune us uh, and to mold us into the likeness of his son um, but it's also um, not something that is non-cognitive um we can see how there's plenty of instances both in the old testament and in the new testament obviously in the old testament the holy spirit came upon people whereas now the holy spirit because of um 
uh, the grace of God and what the cross has done and now we now that we are declared righteous through him the Holy Spirit now indwells in us but just like in the Old Testament and in the New Testament there's no um, there's none of this convulsing or rolling on the floor or shouting and screaming back flimmy, laughing and all that sort of stuff it's it, there is this very structured order between um, the unison of God and man's will as they um, as man partakes in the nature of of God in that sense um, and to be fair if you were to go through the book of Acts just to seal this one off <coughs> um, you only really have to go to the end of Acts um, end of Acts 2 to see that 3,000 souls were saved um, I believe about 3,000 souls were saved but you there's no record of them speaking in tongues and you, there's other pockets of people who either do speak in tongues and then others that don't um, even Paul makes the argument um, in current, uh, First Corinthians I believe where it's um, so do you know do all speak in tongues so even he has this assumption that it's not something um, that everyone does um, so yeah if you're I mean, and arguing as to whether you know you actually have the Holy Spirit in your life or whether you're actually saved um, on the basis of this um, you can breathe a sigh of relief because um, this is not the defining feature um, of, a, of a Christian um, it is actually a whole lot deeper than that um, and we'll certainly touch on that on another episode in a similar vein um, that I would like to dig into but if we dig into the second argument now um, is that speaking in tongues is a prayer language um, and the usual goal to for this is Romans 8 26 um, it reads likewise the spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know what to pray for as we ought but the spirit himself intercedes for us regardless are too deep for words um, this is usually uh, run through as a, a means of similar things like praying in the spirit um, but it is another element where um, the scripture has been slightly bent to mean something that it doesn't because of the way that it's been interpreted um, and there's something else that's a little bit more um, more interesting that we'll touch on later in regards to this but um, if you read this scripture uh, quite plainly it shows that the Holy Spirit speaks to God completely the Holy Spirit speaks to God completely independent of the Christian likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know what to pray uh, for as we ought but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings are too deep for words it's completely independent like we don't know what we're doing so the Holy Spirit on our behalf prays for us with you know the things that um we might possibly need or the things that we are struggling with that sort of thing like we, we don't know we don't know there's uh, plenty of things that uh, could be going on there but um the emphasis or the confusion lies on the ending of that verse with um that states with groanings are too deep for words um the english renders this obviously as um, depending on which version you have is either you know, groanings to deep for words or groanings that cannot be uttered um, the groanings that can be uttered is a slightly better rendering um, but the, both of them do the same thing but the root word um, in the Greek I hope I can say this right is something along the lines of uh, um, it is a dative oh it's an adjective uh, a dative masculine plural um, which means unutterable that baffles words unexpressed or unspeakable so in other words it's completely inaudible it's silent um, this is not something that we as a Christian can tap into so it's not another dimension of prayer um, you know Jesus doesn't tell his disciples this is how you should pray and then use this glossolalia at all God understands our plain speaking 
prayers. Um, you know, there's not a lot really else to, to dig with that one. Um, but it does kind of um, begin to show maybe like the heart behind what we do. It might be completely innocent. Or maybe, you know, there's some pride involved with regards to, you know, thinking that this is the, the next level that, you know, um, God truly understands me when I do this sort of thing. Um, it will tie in very nicely into what I said earlier. Um, but we'll move on to the next argument for now. Um, is that uh, this glossolalia or this estatical utterances um, is a heavenly language. And the go-to scripture for this is First Corinthians 13. Um, it does mean we'll have to read it all the way through, um, but essentially, uh, the breakdown. Um, essentially, you tend to find this when the previous argument we talked about um, kind of gets laid to rest. But um, this one also doesn't quite need that much um, disassembly. But, there is a lot of context to go through. So in First Corinthians 13, um, Paul is laying out something which is called the love chapter with this, essentially. Um, and this is where people pull their um, the argument for saying that this practice is a heavenly language. But um, it's another instance um, of where the scripture is being slightly, and it's a harsh word to use, but I can't think of a better word to use, um, where the the text is being distorted to make a valid point. Um, if you don't understand what I mean, I will read it through and then we'll break it down. So, First uh, Corinthians 13, verse 1 to 13 uh, reads, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I am a noisy gong and or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and if I gain um, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and deliver my body to be burnt, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast, it is not arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable or resentful, it does not rejoice in, at wrongdoing, <coughs> but it rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, will pass away for we know in part and we prophesy in part but when the perfect comes the partial will pass away when i was a child i spoke like a child i thought like a child i reasoned like a child when i became a man i gave up childish ways for now we see in a mirror dimly but then face to face now i know in part then i shall know fully even as i have been fully known so, now faith, hope, and love abide, these three things, but the greatest of these is love. So, if we go back to the very start of this chapter, there's four things um, that Paul uses as examples. Uh, we've got speaking in languages of men and angels, having prophetic powers, prophetic powers, understanding all mysteries and knowledge, having faith that can move mountains and delivering his body up to be burned. In order for um, the position of this being a heavenly language to be true, um, claims two and uh, through to four would also have to be true. But we know um, that it's not the case because it is reasonable to say that Paul hasn't demonstrated the things he has stated. Um, and this is called hyperbole. Uh, the use of the hyperbolic is when a person or the speaker or a writer exaggerates something to prove a point. Um, so what would be the point that Paul is trying to stress to the church in Corinth? 
well, we've read through uh, chapter 13, but if you read the entire letter, you will find that um, this church is not like the church in Jerusalem or even like some of the other churches. Um, there are a lot of things going on that uh, shouldn't be. <laughs> Uh, complacency and sexual scene, competition, abuse of spiritual gifts, um, self-elevation, uh, if I remember correctly, women taking up leadership roles and being unruly, and the services running amok. Uh, we have no idea how great in number this church was, or any church in scripture as well as um, who is saved or not, but um, there's no mention of like a road name or an address so it's plausible that it's quite great in number um, but in chapter thing you know chapter 13 is quite clear amongst other things that the church is lacking in something and it's love um, especially in contrast to what you see with the church in Jerusalem in Acts 2 and the congregation is only looking to be self-pleased not operating in love causing serious issues for the believers this shouldn't be the case. Um, as Christians, we are called to bear with another in love and to put others' needs before our own. Emulating Christ through the sacrificial love we should, um, love that we should have that comes from the Holy Spirit as fruit. Um, and only through Christ and his spirit is this attainable. Now, that's what I'm referring to. So like the agape's love and uh, Jesus' discussion in um, John 13 verse 35 um, but as I mentioned earlier the most damning evidence in regards to the last two arguments um, is that it's actually argued by non-Christians today specifically pagans um, even before Pentecost um, in the Bible um, With regards to today, like if you were to look at the word glossolalia, you would find that, you know, Christianity is in the same, same sentence put alongside of a lot of other um, religions or cults and um, other sort of functions that have all sorts of weird and wonderful operations. Um, that kind of has um, always been the case um, in the sense that, you know, this glossolalia thing isn't something unique to the Holy Spirit. Um, but it's interesting because if you were to go to um, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, specifically Matthew's account, I believe in chapter 6, Jesus mentions something uh, that looks pretty straightforward when you read it in English. Um, and when you follow the sermon, you genuinely, generally would overlook it. Um, the English rendering um, in the piece that we're talking about um, is actually f is actually found in verse seven, but um, it opens up a can of worms when you study it in the Greek. Um, so it says, um, "And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases. Uh, empty phrases. Apologies." as the gentiles do for they will for they think that they'll be heard for their many words and i notice where it says uh, the phrase do not heap up empty phrases in some translations it um it's rendered as vain repetitions um the root word in the greek behind this is uh, batalego which means um or batos anyway means to have a proverbial stammer uh, to stutter, uh, which is by implication to pray to tediously uh, or to use vain repetitions. Um, generally, you should understand every word except pray. To, well, for me, I didn't understand what pray was, so it was a case of like, well, okay, what does this word? What are we trying to, you know, uncover here? Because obviously, know what stuttering sounds like. It's, um, you know, the repetitions of the same sort of different sounds, and it's not necessarily um, a very broken way of speaking. We could say. Um, but with regards to prate, um, it doesn't sound like a lot, uh, but what it means, but it means what it does above, you know, it, uh, as well as to babble, um, prate means to talk like a child, 
essentially, um, which is a little interesting um, reference, perhaps to um, Rev. First uh, Corinthians thirteen verse eleven. Um, but all that aside, you know, um, why is me pointing this out um, rather important? Well, um, in context to the um, sermon I've done around, uh, Jesus is talking to the Jews and rebuking a behaviour that isn't necessary, that isn't needed or necessary for prayer. Um, however, he mentions this specifically being a Gentile practice. Um, this is probably arguably um, glossary is truest form like I mentioned before um, there are other religions and cults and things that um, have this practice um, and Jesus is mentioning this before the day of Pentecost I think it's about three years or so beforehand so it's definitely not something that is unique to the Holy Spirit um, and it's something that has been an argument for those who practice paganism um, as well as other false religions um, but then to be fair some may argue that these are fake versions of glossolalia, but it's hard to contest um, considering the overwhelming unison when, um, especially when comparing between glossolalia and xenolalia, that uh, the first evidence at the Azusa Street Revival, where the Pentecostal movement kind of kicks off, um, if you observe it um, from like handwritten accounts, newspapers and things like that, the first instance um, of someone speaking in other tongues is a woman, can't remember her name, um, speaking in Chinese. Um, but there's also accounts of those who were confessing unbelievers, they do not want anything to do with Christianity at all, who were there engaging in the practice of glossolalia. So we, there is, it's you know, it's a bit muddy. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, it's rather, rather muddy. Um, when trying to, especially if it's something like myself who grew up understanding that glossolalia was um, this thing that you know Christians should be doing, um, that there was this cognitive distance. Was, oh, okay, so you, you you can clearly see that there's two different things going on here at the same time. So he's kind of tried to work out what was going on at that time. Um, but there have been studies on glossolalia. Um, over the past few centuries, it's been all the range uh, with scientific tests and uh, linguistic uh, analysis. And they argue that um, glossolalia is common in highly emotional and euphoric services. Um, there's a lower level of brain activity and hormones are released, uh, specifically like pheromones, is it? or endorphins, apologies, yeah, endorphins, that um, are released, changing one's mood. And glossolalia generally doesn't have any language structure um, like every other language that is known by man. Um, some even say that you hear um, certain dialects, like if you were to say like to come from London, you would have glossolalia with a London dialect sort of thing. Um, whereas you know that the... Uh, languages we have are intelligible and they are structured and even though the way that we hear languages or we use languages is different again they still fall on this general thing of um, an intelligent structure that obviously doesn't come from us um, it comes from he who created it our lord and savior so um, With that in mind, um, it does seem, if you were to go to chapter 14, though to be fair, you could probably press back on this um, for those who don't agree, that um, Paul might actually be dividing between um, the two instances of what this speaking in tongues thing is. Um, because it's interesting that obviously when Jesus mentions that something that the, this is a practice that the Gentiles do, that um, the obviously church in Corinth are 
also Gentiles. And to be fair, they're the only church you receive this um, see this practice or this sign or this gift being operated. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily call it a stretch to interpret scripture with scripture in this sense. Um, but again, I leave it totally open to you guys. Um, but if we read through um, chapter 13, 14, I apologize. Um, it says, uh, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you might prophesy. For the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, he who prophesies speaks to the people for the building up and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in the tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want all now I want you all to speak in tongues. But even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. Unless someone interprets so that the church might be built up. Now brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Even if lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinctive notes, how will anyone know what is played? If a, and if a bugle does not give a, it gives an indistinct sound, who will be ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. For there is doubtless there is doubtless many different languages in the world, and none are uh, none is without meaning. If I speak to you, but if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the um, the speaker I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker will be a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for the manifestation manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue and my, my spirit prays, but my mind isn't fruitful, what am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing. Uh, I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone, in the position of an outsider, or a barbarian, I believe it might be, say, no, barbarians don't ignore me. Um, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God I speak in tongues more than all of you. But nevertheless, in church, I would rather you speak five words with my mind in order to instruct you as to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. And that was 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1 to 19. Um, yeah, there are a few things that... Um, can be argued here with specific, specifically with um, the Greek here um, so there are two types of words that Paul uses to distinguish between um, someone who speaks in a tongue and those who speak in tongues um, again you might consider it a stretch but I just find it interesting how there's one word that is specifically used and it when it is used it's only ever used in a sort of rebuttal or a um, not disciplinary term, but in a way to not condone something. So you have um, glossais, which if you were to look into, you would see right throughout the um, the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts. So if you were to read through the book of Acts, you'd see the words glossais, as in they speak in tongues. Um, and if you were to put your, um, if you're using that as the anchor, for the argument um, for which side of uh, the coin you stand on 
obviously those who hear what is being said on the day of Pentecost hear it in their own languages. So we know for definite there that um, we understand this word glosses to mean other human languages. But the other word that's been used by Paul here um, is specifically in verses, um, it's well, you see it only really in chapter 14 with one exception. I think it's in Mark somewhere. Um, but gloss on is a word that's been used. So it says for um, one who speaks in a tongue, gloss on, speaks not to men but to God. Um, these things that say like uh, speaks not to men not to God uh, speaks not to men but to God and he utters mysteries in the spirit uh, he will be speaking in the air these things are not um, these terms are not uh, something that is used to say oh you know I can, I'm using this gift to edify myself it's actually um, used in the tone of a rebuke um, or a corrective um, it's like saying you know only God knows why Reese is doing that, um, because the way that you know the Holy Spirit didn't give these gifts, so then we can use them for ourselves. You know, He doesn't give someone the gift of healing and say we'll use that for them to use it on them on their own, um, or doesn't give them the gift of teaching, so they can um, teach themselves or preach to themselves. It's always for the benefit of others, and that's something that you see quite strongly with regards to. The uh, argument that Paul is laying down in um, in chapter fourteen, where it's like this: it, these gifts are not for your use; they are there to be used to build up the church and to help the church continue to grow. Um, and that goes for all that goes for all the gifts. It's the same goes for fruits. You know, you can bear the spiritual fruit, but the spiritual fruits aren't there to necessarily benefit you; they're there to benefit those around you. Um, and this is something that we should see as a mark of us Christian, you know, through the love that, um, that Paul is stressing to the Corinthian church, we should be moved to use our talents, our skills, um, you know, our personality, our resources, everything to benefit those around us. And it's not there for, for soul gain. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with capitalism or anything like that. Um, I think it's far more harmful to go down the communist route, but to accumulate something yourself and to share it with others is the way it should work you know we do it out of a heart of love for others um but yeah um we, we do see how there is this distinction it's and it's also interesting that um obviously paul said like with verse four he says you know those who speak speaking the tongue build themselves up um, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. There's um, apparently two ways to understand um, the word prophesy here. Um, there is foretelling and foretelling. Um, so say like foretelling is like you know, thus says the Lord, this is going to happen tomorrow um, at this specific time, and these specific events are going to happen. And then you've got foretelling where it's drawing on. Um, drawing on something that's written down and expanding on it. So it's like preaching, essentially, because um, you're professing, like, God's truth. That's a, another way to to see uh, prophesying. Um, but you could argue, like, well, why are these gifts specifically happening in, in these churches? Um, you could argue, yeah, that um, in the same way that the the Jews certainly didn't have scripture to not really working outside of the temple like geographically the gentiles have nothing at all outside of paul um they would have nothing to continue to teach them so um and also considering where um corinth is based um i believe it's a port city so you would have people from different cultures from different languages different backgrounds going through that area that using all these languages will help establish the church in the truth of God. So, um, obviously, they didn't have scripture. So, you would have someone prophesying. They would be getting direct revelation from God, teaching them how to function as Christians. 
without the use of scripture. Um, that's not to say I'm a cessationist, because obviously when they had it, it would have been cemented, but I do think that um, it does have to be looked at in a more serious manner as to how this um, actually works. Um, so you would, you know, if you were to share it with no scripture, if you, if you had this gift and you were speaking Swahili, someone would interpret that Swahili um, with the same uh, gift of interpretation so that everyone can benefit from that. Um, and then you'd get rooted in that and you continue to grow. Um, at least that's my um, understanding of how things would have worked, understanding it from a, um, a geographical and historical um, understanding and also using a bit of logic. Um, you can pick that apart and take it or, you know, disagree with it as you will. Um, but it just seems to see, seem, just seem to be a way that it seems to operate quite well um, in, in this church. Um, so I can see how that would work here. But then obviously the, the last, well, not that our last argument, um, but uh, certainly one argument that um, could lean on that kind of highlights what I'm talking about more um, with regards to the, the Greek is that um, there's nothing in scripture that says it has to be actual languages but as we've obviously established that um, well to be fair when I first had this argument presented to me it stumped me um, but it did encourage me to look at the original languages um, especially we're trying to translate Greek um, and Hebrew well Hebrew into Greek I should say to try and find a consistent theme and the reason why I mentioned that is um, because there's a question that kind of gets the ball rolling with regards to where I'm going with this but um, the question is where do we get our human languages from from a biblical perspective um, and those who do know the Old Testament would um, say at the events of the Tower of Babel um, to find out about this you'd have to go to Genesis 11 verse 1 to 9 and I'll read that for you where it says now the whole world came uh, now the whole world had one language uh, and the same words and as people migrated from the east they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there they said to one another come let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly and they had brick for stone and butamen for mortar and they said, that then they said, sorry, come, let us make, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and we'll make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to behold the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, there are one people, and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they will purpose to do now will be impossible for them. Let us go down and confuse and confuse their speech. And they confuse their speech, sorry, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them all over the face of the earth and left and they left off the building. Therefore, its name was called Babel or Babel because there the Lord confused all the language of the earth and from there the Lord dispersed all of them over the face of the earth now there's a little question I'd like to ask here um, is whether you understand this event that we see in Genesis to be um, a blessing or a punishment I would hope that you'd come to the conclusion that this is a punishment. Um, and if we uh, drop a ranker in Acts 2, like I said, and it's pretty clear that obviously human languages have been used there. Without a doubt, there's no way to get around that um, other than to, one or two things. I think uh, Alan Parr made the argument that, you know, the, um, the apostles using glossolalia and then the gift of interpretation was given to those around so they could hear it, and they all hear it in the wrong languages I think that's a bit of a stretch um, hermeneutically um, and if you had an ex exegesis I think you'd, you would 
hit a wall quite quickly with that. Um, but like mentioned earlier, um, if you were to look through Acts 2 in the Greek, the word used there for other languages is glosses. And if we get the correct understanding of that, especially with comparing it with how it's used in other portions of scripture, um, especially with the fact that in Acts 2, this word is backed up with words like um, dialectos, which is where we get the word dialect from. It's safe to assume that there's, um, it's safe to assume that um, the other instances of this sign of the Holy Spirit being used um, in the book of Acts um, also, um, or not, not just in the book of Acts, yeah, yeah in the book of Acts, um, carry the same function. So it doesn't necessarily change in how it operates. Because, I mean, if it does, then you run into a whole lot of different um, problems. Because I guess it, when you go to um, Cornelius, the fact that if it was different, Paul's, not Paul's, sorry, Peter's response wouldn't be, oh, the Holy Spirit is falling on the Gentiles the same way that it's fallen on us. And the big revelation is that Jesus is, God is pouring out his spirit upon all flesh. So the salvation has now been opened up to everyone. If it were different, um, Paul, uh, Peter wouldn't make that response. The same way that if Cornelius and everyone around him decided to start prophesying, yeah, it'd be miraculous, but then you wouldn't, uh, Peter wouldn't have the argument to understand that, oh, even though Jesus said that, you know, there are, um, there are sheep that are not a part of my flock. I think in John, uh, it might be John 10, you might have to double check that. Um, but also the fact that you've had these visions of things that you consider unclean and the fact that you know, Jewish people viewed anyone who was not a Jew as unclean, that the fact that Cornelius and those around him are having the exact same um, thing happen to them as it did to him in Acts 2, and the fact that he can go to the other apostles, uh, go to the other apostles and say definitively and with full conviction that God is doing something with the Gentiles as well as everybody else, to change that slightly would throw all of that argument off. Um, but yeah, um, for future reference, if you want to look into these words, um, you've got um, glossé, which is seen in Acts 2 verse 3. Um, no, oh, sorry, yeah, it's spelled G-L-O-S-S-A-I. Um, you see it also in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 8, 1 Corinthians 14 verse 22, and Revelation 17 verse 15. Glossace, which is the plural um, of, of glossé, you see in um, even <laughs> it's used in Mark 16 verse 17. Even though we understand it to not be in earliest manuscripts, it still uses the same word as Acts. So uh, there is that. Um, it's also seen Acts 2 verse 4, Acts 2 verse 11, Acts 10 verse 46, Acts 19 verse 6, Romans 13 verse 13, 1 Corinthians 12 verse 30, 1 Corinthians 14 verse 5, 18, 23 and 39, and Revelation 10 verse 11. Um, like I said earlier, um, Glosson is only specifically used um, in a negative if you um, compare it through. Um, across using the interlinear bible um it's and it's literally used exclusively in corinth um well in uh, corinthians so chapter 14 verse 2 4 13 14 19 and 27 um yeah and it's not used as an apologetic to defend glossolalia but actually as one of review so like i said speaking in the, speaking into the air um Speaking mysteries to God is equivalent to only God knows why he thought that was a good idea. Um, and pray that he might interpret is an interesting thing for Paul to say. So um, even before the person says the words, somehow, um, <laughs> he needs to have it interpreted what he's saying. Um, almost in the fact that 
it could be yeah it's yeah, it's an interesting one because you could allude to the fact that it's not actually interpreted as being from the holy spirit um but that might be a long shot yeah we don't know whether maybe we don't quite know what's going on there um but yeah maybe paul's ex well yeah maybe paul's experience well I have to understand that Paul's experience both he's able to differentiate between the two and to almost like a tongue-in-cheek sort of thing you know pray that he may interpret because oh, yeah essentially what I'm getting at if the whole the Holy Spirit wouldn't leave um, things done in halves so he wouldn't give someone a message and then at some point during the at some point then decide oh I'm going to interpret a message but then we haven't had the so you I would assume quite strongly that um, if the Holy Spirit were to give a message in a different language he's already given someone the ability to be able to understand it and to translate it to those who are there you wouldn't have one without the other so yeah I find it very interesting says pray that he may interpret if we understand that the Holy Spirit doesn't do things in halves um, but there's also one occurrence of um, Glosson in Mark 13 verse 8 um, but I think it's used in a different context there um, uh, but there's a fun fact if you're reading through uh, yeah, 1 Corinthians 14 um, Paul mentions the word barbarian um, in certain translations um, and if you understood the culture back then this term would only be used to refer to someone who didn't speak Greek, so it'd be Hebrew, Aramaic, any other language. Um, so still, kind of leaning towards the argument that is uh, uh, earthly languages, as we've seen in the Book of Acts. Um, the same use of the word intelligible. Uh, all languages are made by God, as we've seen um, in the the Old Testament, meaning that you know there's nuances and it. Um, it is intelligible, the same argument that he makes in verse 10 of um, Corinthians 14. Um, and the significance in comparison to the Tower of Babel um, kind of brings us to the crescendo and essentially um, allows us to answer the question to what did speaking in tongues mean specifically to the Jews at that time? Um, I will give you that in the next episode, but I will at least just lay the groundwork, groundwork for now. Um, well, I'll leave you with some homework, I'll say. If you look at um, how there seems to be a lot of continuity in, which, in regards to Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel and Acts 2, there seems to be this, um, yeah, it's same function, almost, but with different meanings. If hopefully you understand what I mean. So, um, if you were to compare both, they both have everyone on one accord in one place, but the motives and the direction that they're going are completely different. Babel has self-exalting people um, who, you know. Their sole focus is just making themselves great. And they're judged by having other languages. But when we get to Acts 2, God gives the use of these other languages to exalt himself. They praise him. They say all these wonderful things about them. Um, that might be something yeah, to just look into how it's almost as if the, the judgment... In Genesis 11 is being undone because the focus is correct in Acts 2 so I'll leave that with you because um, I just want to leave this with about an hour or so and um, yeah I hope you can meet me on the next one as we crack open um, this next bit now that we've kind of laid the groundwork um, we've gone through all the different arguments that at least I'm aware of with regards to what this speaking in tongues thing might actually mean um, specifically in the context of scripture um, but yeah I, this next one I hope you come with an open mind but also um, can learn something quite quite cool as we dig into this um, 
but by all means if you have any other questions um, you can catch us with uh, the email address that we'll leave in the description um, catch us on our Instagram page um, yeah and I think they might still have the uh, the the survey up as and when it needs to be but um, yeah I want to thank everyone for listening in this far on this controversial topic um, I might put this one under the branch of um, I a false teacher and then put this as the subheading but uh, yeah thank you all for listening in this far I hope you can join me for the next one or any other um, topics you'd like broken down in the same way um, like I'm believing that uh, um, the eternal security discussion might be a very good way to, to break through on this one like this um, but yeah if there's anything else just obviously just drop us a line and we'll get that um, catalogued for you um, and while I'm here I also want to thank those who those of you who um, unbeknownst to me <laughs> um, have been making donations via cryptocurrency I didn't realize that the service that we use um, on rss.com had that facility and that it was um, operating in the background I mean the uh, we've accommodated 620 sats which have done some looking into apparently is 11 pence in in English money but the fact that people care enough to donate of any value is not just you one but I guess the, for us the main focus is that you are um, blessed spiritually rather than us be um, uh, donated to financially um, we don't ask for anything you know it's all done off our own backs um, it's just pretty self-sufficient off the jobs that we do on a day-to-day -day basis so um, yeah I just wanted to thank those who have been donating but then all those who have supported um, up until this point with just listening to the podcast and listening to us rambling on um, so yeah until the next episode I hope you can join us um, yeah but until then take care and God bless